Welcome back to Costumes and Coffee, where we have conversations with the professionals who bring us the latest in fashion, costumes, and culture. Today, I'm sharing my conversation with Colleen Hill, the curator of costumes and accessories at the museum at FIT. Colleen has curated and co-curated more than a dozen exhibits, including shoes, which is still on display right now at the museum at FIT. It highlights more than 300 pairs of shoes from the museum's permanent collection of 5,000 shoes. It's a must-see the next time you're in New York City. Colleen is also the author of some of my favorite coffee table books, including Reinvention and Restlessness, Fashion in the 90s. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Have a happy Friday and a safe weekend. Welcome, Colleen. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. First of all, who are you wearing? Oh, gosh. I honestly cannot remember. <laughs> Great. I love the color. It's just, it's really giving me the richness of fall and like the holiday season. And I love it. Thank the you. Season. I bought it during the pandemic for sure, but now I can't remember from where. I and love it. <laughs> thank <laughs> you. It was because I wear so much black, at least black sweaters and things. I usually have colorful skirts, but you can't tell. So I had to find something that looked a little more exciting on camera. No, in our world, we wear a lot of stage black. So this tan is actually exciting for me. It's like a step up from, you know, just the black that I wear every day. So I look great. <laughs> so tell me a little bit more about what you do. You have like the coolest job. I love fashion history. Um, so just tell me a little bit about like how you got started um, and then a little bit about what you do at FIT. Sure. Well, I have a background in art history. That's how I uh, got my bachelor's. And when I was trying to figure out what to do beyond that, I was a young graduate. I wasn't certain if I wanted to go all the way through a PhD, which is what you need to do in art history to work as a professor, for example. And so I started thinking about what else I was interested in and how I could transition. And I remembered that I loved fashion. And I specifically thought about FIT, where I ended up getting my master's. And the sort of funny story behind that is that as a child, I was a really big fan of Saved by the Bell, the TV show. <laughs> and one of the characters went to FIT. So I knew about this school. Oh, was it, who was it? Who was it that went to It was Lisa, of course. Of course it was Lisa Turtle, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so awesome. I I knew about this school and I ended up looking into what master's programs they had and they did then and still have a program in fashion studies which essentially teaches you museum practice and history and theory all related to fashion specifically. Wow. Yeah, so I was lucky enough to intern at the museum at FIT which is right on the museum's campus. It has a fantastic collection of about 50,000 objects, uh, accessories, costumes, textiles. And as soon as I graduated, I took a job at the museum that was a part-time administrative position. And I always emphasize that because it's really hard to find these jobs. It wasn't something I was gonna walk out of my master's and find a curatorial job. Yeah. So I worked my way up. I got to know everyone at the museum. I did whatever was asked of me. So I got to learn a lot about how museums work. And within about a year, a year and a half, I was starting to curate exhibitions. So it went pretty quickly. 
Wow. That's incredible. So what is day to, what does a day in the life of you look like when you walk into FIT, like you, you know, contacting people to get garments? Are you doing, you know, reading books? Are you putting together books? Cause you've published quite a few books. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I do all of those things. <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's the fun part. I always say it is truly the least boring job on the planet. There is never a day that goes by slowly. I'm not one of those people who's like, oh, is it five o'clock yet? Never, ever. It's a really entertaining job. It's very busy. Um, it's not easy, but it's really fulfilling. Um, so yes, I do contact designers for various exhibitions or people who may be able to lend to a show I'm working on. Um, in general, I organize exhibitions. So I conceptualize them, I research them, I write books about them, and then I use our permanent collection to form the basis of all of my exhibitions. I love to use as much of our permanent collection as possible. And then I fill in gaps from uh, lenders who may have private collections or from the designers themselves, occasionally from other museums, but that's very expensive. Um, so keeping all of these things in mind. Um, and the museum at FIT is obviously also part of a college. So our day-to-day -day activities also involve helping to enrich our students' lives by teaching them about fashion history and hopefully showing them how important a knowledge of this history is for anything they're doing. That's what I love in particular about FIT. Like I know that one of the rules that you guys have in the museum is that um, a curator is always with the guests. So you're actually, there's an educational experience, right? Like, yeah, we want to give you time to, you know, explore the art and, you know, fill it for yourself and come up with your own, you know, conceptions and stories. And, but the fact of the matter is somebody created this garment and there's a story already behind it. And you would want to know that in order to be educated. And I really do appreciate that about, you know, FIT. I think that's really cool. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for noticing. Um, because uh, sometimes you don't necessarily get to engage with the curators. And for us as curators, it's really fulfilling because we get direct feedback and people often do come up to us and say, oh, why didn't you include this? Or have you thought about that? Or I'd love to see an exhibition about this. And it's really helpful for us to know what our visitors want. I love that. I love that you get that direct feedback and that you're able to use that and make it even better. Um, what has been your your favorite exhibit so far that you've curated? Uh, in 2016, I curated an exhibition called Fairy Tale Fashion. Uh -huh. And it was a funny exhibition to put together because I sort of had the title and a very general idea of the show before I had a real foundation for it. And one of the reasons I love working at the museum is that my two mentors, uh, Valerie Steele, who's our director, and Patricia Mears, who is our deputy director, are very generous women. And throughout my career, I've been able to go to them and say, I'm thinking about this show, what do you think? And they always give me really great feedback. Um, so in this instance, Valerie asked if I had any ideas for upcoming shows. I mentioned fairy tale fashion and in her lovely way, she said, oh, that sounds great, do it. And of course I had no idea really what that meant yet. Um, so the first thing I did was look at 
uh, written fairy tales from the late 16th century, the really early versions, they were all oral tales first. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I just happened upon basically the earliest published volume of Western fairy tales, at least. And I was reading the story of Sleeping Beauty. And of course, Sleeping Beauty is asleep for 100 years. The prince wakes her up and written into the story, he actually thinks to himself, oh, she's so beautiful, but her clothes are so out of date, like something my grandmother would wear. Really? Oh. So funny. And I thought, there it is. I have to read these stories. I have to extract these bits about dress and fashion yeah. appearance. And then I need to illustrate them using fashion. So it was a really fun show because I got to dive into this complete other genre, which was the history of fairy tales, yeah. but also be very creative in the way that I presented the stories. And I think ultimately it was successful, although it was a very um, stressful thing to do because it was not a straightforward show whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. So you had to really like pull from what you interpreted from those different. I love that. That's incredible. I hate that I missed that. I think maybe we should bring that one back. I know. I know. I always think about a part two. There's plenty more. Well, yeah, I know you have so many. Um, well, you have a current one right now. Um, reinvention and restlessness, right? The the 90s. So I wanted to talk to you. What designer do you think in the 90s really, really like pushed the boundaries? Like who is the one that you're just like, yep, that was the one. <laughs> That's surprisingly an easy answer because I always have difficulties with that kind of thing. In this instance, it's definitely Marta Margiela. Oh my goodness. I thought you were going to say Alexander McQueen. So, okay. Uh, why? why? Why was, why would, would I well, totally see that though? <laughs> Margiela basically did everything. What I find really fascinating, the way I ended up organizing reinvention and restlessness was finding eight big trends in fashion that I think helped to push the boundaries, helped to shape the foundation for 21st century fashion. And in some way, I think with maybe one or two exceptions, Margiela fits into every single one of those trends. And yet he was completely outside of them at the same time. Wow. So he was just always ahead of his time. He's the person that really made deconstruction and repurposing and thinking even about the way that we're working within this sort of formula for how a, a woman's body should be seen. All of these kinds of things were um, ideas that he was experimenting with and he just consistently pushed the boundaries, usually on a shoestring budget. He should have been someone that everyone rolled their eyes at, but instead he was incredibly successful because he was just so innovative. Incredible. That's incredible. I love it. Um, who would you say the designers are today that are pushing the boundaries? Oh, that's a really great question. I am not as informed on 21st century fashion. I have a very difficult time as a historian looking at 21st century fashion and thinking yeah. about who's the most envelope pushing, if you will. Um, I'm going to steer clear of that only because I, I feel like it's, I need another 10 years. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, because you really do have to know like what influence they have on the culture. And that definitely takes time. And I think that's what is so frustrating to me about kind of sometimes labeling the designers before they actually have the chance to grow and matriculate through the actual industry and the process of people wearing your clothes and the clothes staying in the closet for a while and, you know, being repurposed. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah, so I, I respect the decision to steer clear of that. <laughs> when we talk about... The reason why I reached out to you just to give my guests some insight is because I was on the set of a live performance with a styling client and she had commissioned to have this um, jumpsuit made. It had this amazing train, well-constructed, like it was a very well-constructed train. And I was just like, man, like, I'm just thinking about how we're going to pack this because this actually needs to live somewhere because at a certain point in time, your work, your, you as a person will be referenced and we'll want to go back and maybe see this jumpsuit. And she was like, what? And I was like, yeah, that's really important. Um, so a lot of times we don't think about that, right? As we're wrapping movies, as we're wrapping television shows, we probably should do a better job of taking care of those garments because someone like you may knock on our door one day and say, hey, you remember that fairy, you know, you remember that dress from such and such movie? Like, hey, can we use that in our exhibit? So I just wanted to talk to you about just the importance of that process when it comes to your, your team of people and them unpacking it. Like, what is the, what is the importance of packing it and making sure it's preserved and kind of what are some of your tips if you have any? Sure. Well, it is incredibly important. And I was really happy when you reached out to me for several reasons, but one of the reasons was this story. And it reminded me of part of the museum FIT's collection history. But we do have some good examples of movie costumes. And in fact, the reason we have those is because uh, we were, the museum in its infancy was putting on an exhibition and a sort of runway show. This was in the early 70s that was about Gilbert Adrian, the MGM costume designer. Wow. and. For your uh, listeners or viewers who don't know of Adrian's work, he did a lot of the costumes for The Wizard of Oz. So in fact, most people know some of his work. Yeah. Um, and we, uh, meaning the museum, put out a call to women around the country saying he, I should also say that Adrian did um, ready to wear and custom suits. He didn't, and clothing. He didn't only do costumes. Very cool. And so there was a call for women around the country to send their suits to the museum for this particular project. And someone reached out and said, you know, MGM is throwing away a whole lot of Adrian's costumes. I snagged some, do you want them? And that's how we ended up with some of these costumes. Wow. Um, so we obviously preserve them at a very high museum standard. So we have a couple of spaces that are devoted only to our collections. They're temperature and humidity controlled. We have conservators checking on that constantly. Things are only hung when they're stable enough to be hung. Um, anything else is put in a blue board box or special tissue paper. You have to keep things away from light. Um, so in general, you know, museums have a very high standard and, and 
especially meticulous, but you can in fact store these things uh, fairly easily at home if you have the right materials. And that usually includes things like these non-acidic papers and boxes, etc. Um, and there are some resources. So for example, the Costume Society of America has resources for how you can store and pack garments to keep them safe. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's very important because as you said, something that maybe doesn't seem imminently important will be important in the future. And I think the crossover between costume design and fashion design is more relevant than ever. I mean, we're all so immersed in popular culture. These costumes are very important. Absolutely. Um, so let's get into these rapid questions. Okay. <laughs> All right. You ready? Yeah. <laughs> questions? Okay. All right. What type of clothes do you collect, if any? I collect some 1960s clothes, usually just for my own wear. Uh, it's my favorite decade. I've loved it since childhood. I steer clear of anything that's anywhere near museum quality because that is what my museum and other museums are for. But if it's uh, something that is a little more off the rack or handmade, that's the kind of thing I'll collect and still continue to wear. Speaking of that, what's your um, favorite vintage accessory that you own and where did you get it? Oh, that's a great question. I have a handbag by Emmanuel Kahn, who was a really important uh, French designer in the 1960s and 70s, uh, really influenced a number of people, although she rarely gets credit for it. And I have this beautiful bag that is um, a sort of uh, link of suede patches and silver rings. It's very Paco Rabanne. And I believe she did this kind of thing before Paco Rabanne. In fact, he worked for her in yeah. the early 60s. Uh, and we have a version of this bag. I'm sort of contradicting myself here, but we have a version of that bag at the museum. And I happened to find one at a vintage fair and bought it for myself. I never use it. It's too precious, but it's really beautiful. Yeah, exactly. So speaking of your favorite decade being the 60s, do you have a favorite designer from that decade? Oh, that's tough. I always go back to Barbara Hulaniki, who was the de designer for Biba. Uh, I just love Biba's aesthetic and the whole idea of this superstore, basically, when they opened what was essentially a department store in London. Uh, just the idea of if I could travel back in time, that would be the place I would go and snatch up a bunch of clothes. It was just such a dream that I don't think could ever be replicated. I love that. I love that. Okay, just a few more. Um, silver or gold? I'm going to go with silver only because when, for whatever reason in the 90s when I was growing up, I would only wear silver. Gold seemed like old lady jewelry to me. Now yeah. I love them both, but since I've had a longer history with silver, I'll say silver. Suede or leather? Leather. Nice. Okay. And when did mixed metals become a thing? Certainly by the 70s, but I would say even earlier, depending on the designer. I'm not much of a jewelry expert, but I can think of some brooches, for example, from the 30s and 40s that definitely mixed metals in their designs. I... So 20th century is when it really takes off, but who precisely started that? I'm not certain. I love it. I could sit and pick your brain all day. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate the time. 
It was so great to meet you, Jasmine. Thank you. Thank you so much, Colleen. Be sure to subscribe and look out for the next episode. Talk to you soon.